Welcome to episode 179 of This Week in Linux, recorded live on January 1st, 2022. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. And if you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. I recently took a break from making this show over the holidays, but for now, since we're in a new year, it's time to bring the show back. So welcome to your weekly source of Linux good news. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean and by Bitwarden. Oh, first in the show this week, the entire Linux community received a Christmas gift from John Mad Dog Hall. For those who don't know who Mad Dog is, he's the board chair of the Linux Professional Institute and also a lot of other uh, great things that he's done over the years related to Linux uh, and just computers and, and technology in general. If you want to learn more about uh, Mad Dog, I'll have a link in the show notes for you know like his Wikipedia page and that kind of thing. Uh, but he decided to bring provide a Christmas gift, and what does that mean? Well. In 1994, at the Decus, I'm not sure how you're supposed to say that one, but it was a conference that stands for the Digital Equipment Computers Users Society, and Linus Torvalds gave a talk about an introduction to Linux at this event. Now, I'm not sure if this is the first ever talk that Linus gave about Linux, but it was one of the earliest for sure. And unfortunately, recordings of that talk have been lost over the years until now. Mad Dog found some tapes in storage of the talk and decided to put them online for everyone to enjoy as a Christmas gift to the Linux world. Mad Dog also shared a great story about his experience finding and using Linux in general to accompany this uh, Christmas gift, so you'll find a link to the talk and the story in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of Krita. Krita is one of the best digital painting programs out there just in general, but also being open source does make it even better, in my opinion. Now, this is a huge release with 5.0. There's a lot of new features and improvements. We're not going to be able to talk about everything because there's a ton of stuff, but I do want to highlight something. So, uh, Krita 5.0 revamps its handling of brushes, gradients, and palettes, so they're now faster and use much less memory, as well as being more reliable when you use them. Uh, Krita 5.0 also features improvements to the gradient and smudge brush engine. It has been rewritten, and they also introduced a new built-in storyboard editor. Now, a lot of people might not be aware, but Krita also has the ability to do animations. So their animation system has been completely overhauled in Krita 5.0. The animation capabilities get, basically get a supercharge with, with this latest release, thanks to a crop of user interface improvements and the inclusion of several new features, including clone frames, animated transform masks. They even made it possible to import videos and GIFs as Krita animations, which is pretty awesome. And another thing that I want to talk about that is going to be very valuable to some people who do tutorials and that sort of thing is that you can now use a recorder built into Krita 5.0 to make a video of your painting sessions. So if you want to do a tutorial about how to do something or you just want to do like one of those, you know, speed speed run type of things where you kind of speed up the process of making it to show the, the beginning and the end process of the whole way, you can do that now built into Krita 5.0. And they're just so much more on this latest release. And if you learn more about it, I have links in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of Darktable 3.8. 
So if you're not familiar with Darktable, Darktable is an open source alternative to Adobe Lightroom. Essentially, it is an application to do some processing on uh, photos like raw images from a camera if you have like a DSLR and that sort of stuff. Now, this latest version of Darktable 3.8 has had an overhaul of its keyboard shortcut system. This is really, really cool. It doesn't sound like it's that important, but it's awesome because it enables users to control Darktable using a variety of different input devices, including MIDI controllers and even game pads, which is just really super interesting and it allows a lot of customization for people to be able to take a MIDI controller, for example, and then allow it to modify how it interacts with the Darktable application. Just very cool. They've also added support for Canon RAW CR3, and also they have read support for the HEIF and HEIC file format. And they've also added some new modules and things like that, such as the new diffuse or sharpen module, allowing you to simulate or to revert diffusion processes to reconstruct images from lens blur, hazing, sensor low-pass filter, or noise. It can also be used to simulate watercolor smudges, increase local contrast, simulate blooming, and apply surface blur, all sorts of really cool stuff. And this new module is a very sought-after thing that a lot of people are appreciative of this new uh, addition to Darktable. Also, another new addition to Darktable is the new LM LMMSE Demosaic Algorithm. I totally understand what that is. Has been introduced. Now, this algorithm is particularly suited uh, for high ISO or noisy images to improve those and clean that sort of stuff up. Uh, if you want to learn more about the latest version of Darktable 3.8, I have a link in the show notes. Up next in the show is a, actually not a release. It's a beta, technically right now, for OBS Studio 27.2. But I wanted to talk about this not because of what's coming with this beta. And also, it's just really cool that we got some news that Red Hat has donated $10,000 to the OBS Studio project to help improve it. And that's just, re- just really nice to see the amount, all the different companies who are coming together to help support this awesome open source project. But the things that I want to talk about with this first beta of OBS Studio 27.2 is that they're bringing a lot of new improvements uh, and including a hotkey support when running OBS on Wayland, very important. A hotkey filter search, which is actually very important, but it doesn't seem like it would be necessarily because why would you need to search for your hotkeys? Well, the reason is that if you are like me and you have a ton of scenes and a ton of sources in those scenes, the list of hotkeys on the settings page is enormous. So being able to search for the actual key itself through maybe like what the key uh, shortcut is using, like the actual key, key binding or what is said on the top, like you can kind of already do it, but not exactly. So I'm really happy to see the improvements to that. Also, there are various audio fixes for Linux, some experimental support for the AOM uh, AVI or the SVT AVI uh, video encoders for the open source AV1 for formats. Uh, also, there's the one of the most important thing that I was really happy to see is that the latest version of OBS Studio 27.2 will be getting Flatpak support. Now, not just Flatpak support, because it already kind of has that, but it's not, you know, it's not really made by the OBS team. But this one now is going to be officially uh, Flatpak managed by the OBS Studio project, which is awesome. Now, you can, this makes it also OBS Studio can now be properly Flatpaked for app sandboxing and distribution, uh, thanks to the work of the GNOME developer, George Trafakis. 
Sorry if I said that wrong. Uh, but there's a lot of great work has been done for the past couple of months by George to help make the flat pack support in OBS much, much better. And it's so awesome to see that OBS is going to take that as an official way to get it on Linux. So if you'd like to learn more about this uh, beta release of OBS 20, 27.2, I have a link in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Now is the perfect time to dive into the DigitalOcean. Their new app platform service helps you build modern cloud-native apps for way less money. With the app platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites faster and easier than ever before using a simple, intuitive interface. With the app platform, you can also simply point it to your GitHub or GitLab repository and let it handle all the heavy lifting for you. Whether you're using Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, or container images, all of this is supported on the app platform. You just point it to your repository, and it just handles the whole thing for you, which is just awesome. And by running the app platform on their own infrastructure, DigitalOcean keeps your costs significantly lower than with other products. Plus, it's built on top of DigitalOcean's Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. As a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started building your world-changing app with the app platform for free. And it gets better than that because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with a $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. And I want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is the latest release of OpenRGB 0.7. This is an open source RGB lighting control application that doesn't depend on manufacturer software. That is the biggest important piece about this because one of the biggest complaints about RGB in terms of hardware, even on Windows, is that the software ecosystem surrounding it is, uh, you know, there's there's some issues with that. Like every manufacturer has their own application. And if you want to mix and match devices, you can end up with some conflicts of those devices. Also, you can even have like these apps competing for your background resources and stuff like that. And in the case of Linux users, many of these apps are exclusive to Windows. So OpenRGB is a project to bring support for these different types of like keyboards and uh, mouse and even like RAM sticks that have RGB to be able to control those and do whatever you want with them uh, through this application. So OpenRGB 0.7 has added 33 new pieces of hardware to be supported on the supported devices list. They've also added a new save to device feature for being able to save settings to the internal memory of a device provided that it has the ability to do that, which is awesome because a lot of people are going to be very happy about that because it means you don't have have to have the worry about whether or the software is, is actually active or not to have that configuration set. It'll be saved on the device itself, which is great. Uh, also, new settings tab to offer up more options without manually editing the files, uh, which is fantastic. And also, OpenRGB 0.7 has introduced a new plugin architecture to actually enhance the capabilities of the software. And if you'd like to learn more about OpenRGB, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of Mozilla's Firefox, and that is Firefox 95. Now, there's a lot of interesting features in this latest release, but we're going to talk about a couple and also one that's really interesting we're going to save for the last part of this of this topic. But uh, first of all, let's talk about the picture-in-picture button can be moved to the opposite side of the embeds. doesn't seem like it'd be a very big value to do that, but in some configurations, it totally can be, depending on how the player's set up and that sort of thing, uh, because you know, it's just having it only on one place 
could get in the way depending on what you need to do. So it's nice that they're making it possible to be able to move it. Uh, also, Firefox 95 is bundling a user agent override for uh, basically it allows you to get features from different services that might not be accessible, such as uh, it enables users of Firefox to access Slack features like calls and huddles, otherwise limited to those of other browsers. Despite them working totally fine in Firefox, they are just kind of not allowed to have them somehow or whatever. So Firefox is basically making it so services like this will do the thing that they're supposed to do regardless of the browser, which reminds me of the stupid, awful world of like the 90s and the early 2000s where people would be like, this website is best viewed in Internet Explorer, blah, 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 blah. Hate that stuff. Don't ever want to go back to that. So please uh, stop it, websites, and also good job, Mozilla, for addressing it in this particular case. Also, this release uh, introduces some improvements to reduce the CPU usage, which will be good for battery life. So because this release avoids posting NS events to the event loop every time a non-native event is ran. So it's going to be giving a lot of improvements to battery life due to reducing the CPU usage. The next thing and the most important thing I want to talk about is the RLBox integration, and it works across all platforms. So RLBox is used to protect against security vulnerabilities within third-party libraries. So essentially, uh, RLBox is designed to sandbox third-party libraries using WebAssembly-based sandbox and an API for retrofitting existing application code within the sandbox library. So the RL box will isolate the memory of the sandbox library from that of the application itself of Firefox, among other security benefits. And if you want more details about uh, this, about RL box, I'll have a link in the show notes for that, as well as a link to the latest release of, of, of Mozilla. The word, I, I can't, somehow I can't remember the name of the application for a second. <laughs> Mozilla Firefox 95 is the name of the application. Yeah, I'm going to leave in that little flub. Whatever. <laughs> Up next in the show is the latest version of GIMP, the GNU Image Manipulation Program, and that is 2.10.30. As we wait for the much-anticipated GIMP 3.0, the GIMP team have provided a new release of 2.x version for the GNU Image Manipulation Program. Now, this is primarily a maintenance or bug fix release, but there are some notable things to address. For example, the AVIF exporting from GIMP now favors using the AOM AV1 encoder. Improvements when trying to sandbox the app have been made for this latest release, and there's also been various improvements to the support for file handling of the PSD files, which is the Photoshop document from Adobe's Photoshop. So that is very nice, and I look forward to the GIMP 3.0 covering it on the show because there's a lot of really awesome stuff coming for that. We don't have an ETA exactly when that's going to happen, but I look forward to it. If you'd like to learn more about GIMP 2.10.30, I'll have links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about the App Image Pool application, which is essentially an app store for app images. So App Images is one of the main three universal app formats for Linux application distribution. And depending on who you ask, which app format is best or so, is up for grabs. However, there has always been one glaring issue for app images. There isn't a centralized place to find app images. Uh, Most of the time, you'll find them individually, like how someone might find Windows software, which could be a benefit in some ways for people who are transitioning from Windows, but ultimately, it's kind of inefficient to find 
app images in that way. Now, the app image pool application is a GUI app to manage and find app images, which is nice. And also it gets a lot of this data from the apimagehub.com service, which is a, a centralized approach, though it's a third party thing not made by the app image people themselves. Uh, so there's, there's a little bit of, you know, not everybody is using that particular hub, although it would be kind of cool if there was a collective effort to say, hey, let's just use this one thing and be done with it. But that's not exactly how it works right now with app images. But what's really cool also in addition to this is you can download from st uh, directly from GitHub for the app images that are storing it. So you don't need an extra server to be involved. And it also provides version history and multi-download support for inside of app image pool. And it's just, it's really cool that they're doing this approach by taking the, 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 the data from the appimagehub.com website and creating a GUI store for it. Uh, there's also been multiple attempts to create a store of sorts for app images over the years, but for some reason or another, they don't tend to make it. So I hope this one sticks around at least for a little while. <laughs> so if you'd like to learn more about App Image Pool, I have links in the show notes. Up next in the show is Lib Adwaita 1.0 has been released. This is GNOME's Lib Adwaita 1.0 is a release for implementing the latest uh, GNOME Human Interface Guidelines, or HIG. Lib Adwaita 1.0 is the successor to the Lib Handy that was created for GTK3, and Lib Adwaita 1.0 offers a reworked style sheet that the Adwaita style has become part of the library rather than within GTK, and this new Lib Adwaita style is designed to be more modern, supports uh, runtime recoloring, a more proper dark variant contrast, which is very important. Dark mode is super important for a lot of people, including myself. Uh, style classes updates, API to support the new cross-desktop dark style preference, uh, improved notifications, and a lot, lot more. So GTK4 successor is libedweta. The libhandy library is what essentially was being used for the GTK3. Now, this new version actually looks pretty good for this latest version of Edweta. I wasn't really a fan of the previous versions, and except for the, I think the dark mode was pretty good for the GTK3 version as well, but uh, I, I really like the fact that they're putting effort, more effort into the dark mode because, uh, especially with the cross desktop uh, dark style preference thing. Uh, but so that way you can say, I want to use dark as much as possible and it allow you to do that. And that's very important for me. But there's, this is actually a win for some people and a, and a loss for others. So, for example, uh, Linux, some Linux developers are irritated by inconsistencies when some distros decide to customize the theme of their overall look uh, because it kind of makes sometimes makes artifacting happen or some you know uh, conflicts depending on the application could happen. Uh, but there's also an issue of well, this is kind of a loss for desktop customization for those who want to do that in a, a lot of ways because the recoloring allows you to change some assets of it, like the, the coloring highlights, but not the overall feel and look of it. So, you know, some people want to have their applications to be, you know, looking all the same as much as possible to be like a cohesive environment and that sort of thing. And with this new change, it's going to be a lot harder to do. Now, there are some people saying that this is not a big deal because there's GTK3 and then there's GTK4, and that people can still make applications that are that are on, based on GTK3. But that's that's not a solution. That's more of like we're eventually going to have to deal with this sort of thing. So uh, I think that there's some really good value for Libidweta, absolutely. But also the lack of control for theming is not going to um, appeal to a lot of people. So 
In fact, uh, we talked about on a previous episode that Solus decided to change their uh, budgie desktop from being uh, GTK-based to EFL-based due to this uh, change in libedweta in GTK4. So if you'd like to learn more about that, I'll have a link to episode 168 in the show notes, as well as a link to learn more about libedweta 1.0. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is an awesome password manager. It allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do it? Well, it provides you with multiple tools for storing your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generating passwords with an auto-generator, and also even filling in passwords on login forms so you don't have to do any of this stuff, which is awesome. Plus, you can access your data across many different types of devices, whether it's a web browser, a mobile application, a desktop application, or even on the command line. And Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices, so you know you're the only person with access to your data. Plus, Bitwarden is open source, which is why another reason why I'm a big fan of Bitwarden. So go right now to bitwarden.com slash DLN and make us make the smart move like many from the community have and get your account at Bitwarden. Plus, you can get their premium account, which is less than a dollar per month. That's right. Less than a dollar per month gets you one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, Priority Customer Service, even Bitwarden Send Service. So much cool stuff. Go to bitwarden.com slash dealing to get started, and you can get started with that premium account for less than a dollar per month. So, And also, thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Speaking of EFL, EFL stands for Enlightenment Foundation Libraries, and we have a new version of the Enlightenment window environment for 0.25. Now, I'm calling it a window environment, not a DE, which is desktop environment, or a window manager, because it's not really either one of those. It's like a it's like a hybrid sort of in the middle between the two, so that's why I call it a window environment. That's not what they call it, you know, but, you know, I'm, that's what I'm going to go with forever. Until they come and until they provide a thing that they want, they want me to say, then we'll see. I might still use the window environment because I like it. 0.25 is the latest release of this window environment, and it adds new features like uh, screen dimming, blanking timeout code has been reworked, and there's uh, a gesture recognition for touchpads has been added, improved temporary uh, temperature monitoring, and Bluetooth battery monitoring within inside of Enlightenment, uh, reduced power usage when the screen is blank, which is very good. Uh, also, fingerprint support has been added into the desktop lock. They've also uh, improved some uh, the, when you bring when you unplug and replug in a screen. It now restores Windows in a more sensible manner, which is nice. And the biggest one for me is that there's a new flat look to their theme inside of Enlightenment 0.25. And I think Enlightenment is looking nicer with this new approach to the theming. Uh, depending on your preference, you might not like a flat theme. You might like it. I personally do like flat themes depending on how they're done. You can do them pro- improperly, but you know they can be also fantastic. So it just depends on how it was made. And as a, a quick side note, uh, Enlightenment has been around for a very long time. Uh, if you're if you're not familiar with it, it's been it was first released in 1997. The reason I'm saying that is because it's been 24 years, and I'd like to suggest to the Enlightenment team to drop the zero point whatever thing in the in the versioning because I mean it's 0.25 rather than just Enlightenment 25. Because I mean you don't want to go 1.0 or anything. Just drop the preceding zero and refer. It's also referred to as E25 anyway in most cases when you're talking about this like the the abbreviation of it. So you know, just consider 
no longer using the zero point because at this point, 24 years later, I don't know what the zero is doing. And it implies to people that it is a beta to, and it's not. So anyway, if I learn more about enlightenment 0.25, I'll have links in the show notes. Up next in the show is a desktop environment that actually is a desktop environment, and that is the Maui Shell. So the Nitrix development team has announced a new desktop that they are calling the Maui Shell. They say that the objective of Maui Shell is to deploy a convergent desktop shell with different form factors. From mobile phones and tablets to desktop computers, Maui Shell will adapt to various form factors, and there's no need for multiple versions targeting different form factors. And this is a really interesting idea. There's been a lot of attempts to do convergent desktop stuff. Uh, GNOME is kind of now doing that with Libidweta. And uh, Plasma has had that, especially with like Plasma Mobile. But Plasma is a really interesting thing because they've had the ability to scale and readjust uh, the responsiveness of, the, of the, the desktop environment for a while. But they're doing the Plasma Mobile to kind of focus on the mobile aspects. Uh, but this one is kind of like doing the whole approach that Ubuntu was going to do in the, the Unity style where it's, it's a single uh, desktop environment that is uh, convergent in itself. And uh, this is interesting because Maui Shell consists of two main components, the cask, which is the shell container, and ZPace as the compositor. Uh, so the KDE stack is heavily involved, but based on my research, it does not appear to be a based on Plasma directly, but it is using a lot of the KDE stack in general, like K-Frameworks and that sort of stuff. Now, this is very early days, so it's not ready to be used just yet, but experimental builds will be available in the next release of the Nitrix Linux distribution if you do want to try it out. Uh, it will There will also be a Plasma version of that as well, so you can try out the Plasma version of Nitrix and also this new Maui Shell in there. And I will say that the Maui Shell looks pretty cool. It's an interesting approach. And I also think that Nitrix uh, Plasma implementation looks pretty nice too. So there's, there's that. If you'd like to learn more about Nitrix Linux or the Maui Shell uh, desktop environment, I'll have links in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of Tails. This is a Linux distribution, the latest release of 4.25. And for the most part, it's a bug fix and maintenance update, but there are some cool new features to talk about. For those unfamiliar, Tails is an acronym for the uh, Amnesic Incognito Live System. And the latest release of 4.25 has updated the Tor browser to 11.0.2, updated Tor itself to 0.4.6.8. And there's also some really cool features that I want to talk about, like the they've added an external hard disk, being able to uh, add a new entry to the Grub bootloader for Tails for each external hard disk, be able to boot from those. And also a backup utility added a, basically to backup the persistent storage to another Tails USB stick. Now, it's already possible to do this manually, but this utility automates the process, which is awesome because Tails is fantastic in a lot of ways. But one of the things that kind of makes it a little bit problematic to some people is that the amnesic part of the name of the uh, distribution is to not remember anything. So persistent storage is not designed to be there. And adding it sometimes is necessary. Now, sometimes you don't want that, but they make it possible if you do to be able to activate it. And they made a utility to make that process easier, which is awesome. Now, this is an initial version of this utility, so it is kind of limited, but they have plans for improvements to it and that sort of thing. They just didn't want to like wait any longer to release this because backups are a highly requested feature for many people. If you'd like to learn more about Tails Linux distribution, I'll have links in the show notes below. 
Up next in the show is the latest release of Kali Linux, which is 2021.4. Now, have you ever wanted to be a hacker? Well, me too. In fact, back in the day, I used to go by the name Crash Override. But that's only because my original name, Zero Cool, became too famous in the hacker world due to a job I pulled as I shotgunned two 56K modems to break through a mainframe. No, wait. No, wait, that's the plot of a movie from the mid-90s. Never mind, that's not me. But seriously, if you ever wanted to learn about hacking or penetration testing, Kali Linux is a great tool for getting started, and more importantly, a great tool for professional pen testers. Now, quick reminder, it's not for everyone. If you are not intending to learn about pen testing and that sort of stuff, you shouldn't use Kali Linux. It's not made for everyday usage. And if you are a professional, then of, of course, feel free to ignore that statement because if you're a professional ha- pen tester or hacker, then feel free to use it whatever you want. But it's not made for everyday usage. So if you are using it because it sounds like it's a cool distribution, it's not made to be the most secure. It's actually made to break into things. So... With that said, here's what's new in 2021.4. Improved Apple M1 support, extended uh, compatibility with the Samba clients, uh, easier configuration of package manager mirrors. They've also added support for uh, Raspberry Pi 02W and USB Armory Mark II ARM images. And also uh, they've added updates to XFCE, GNOME, and KDE. Uh, For those who don't know, XFCE is the default desktop environment, and they have a lot of improvements for this latest version. And they've also optimized the panel panel layout and added two new widgets for Kali Linux uh, in the CPU usage and the VPN IP data for those who need to do that. Again, if you're just getting started, Please do not run it as a daily driver. It's not made for those types of people. Uh, And if you are a professional pen tester, then feel free to ignore that previous sentence. If you'd like to learn more about Kali Linux 2021.4, I have links in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of Calculate Linux version 22. For those unfamiliar with Calculate Linux, this is a rolling release distribution based on Gentoo. It's also touted to be backward compatible with Gentoo, so if you want to use certain things with Gentoo inside of Calculate Linux, you should be able to do so, which is pretty cool. Now, what's new in Calculate 22, they've added support for long intervals between system updates. Now, you can upgrade whenever you want, even if you have not updated your system in a very long time. Now, how long between updates can you go? Well, no idea, but it will be interesting to see what the results are, as I'm sure some people will do some crazy tests to find out. Uh, ported Also, they, they ported uh, the Calculate Utilities to Python 3 and removed Python 2.7 from the distribution image, which is good because Python 2.7 has been deprecated for a while, and there's been, you know, there's still a little bit of the Python world transitioning to 3 from 2.7. Uh, but there, most of it has, and I'm glad to see that parts of uh, the Calculate Linux is included in that transition. Also, they've added Bluetooth support for Alsa. They've enhanced support for Hyper-V hardware virtualization, and they've also improved the performance of the overall system. But the thing that I was really happy to see is that Calculate Linux is now using Pipewire by default which is fantastic because Pipewire is awesome. And if you've never seen Pipewire or you never heard about Pipewire, well, it is a way to do uh, professional audio stuff inside of Linux without having to do any uh, like headaches that you have to get in order to set it all up. So you may have heard, if you're if you've been around in Linux for a while, you may have heard of Pipewire, but if not, there's mostly people talk about Jack versus Pulse Audio. Now, Pipewire is awesome because it basically takes the best of both worlds of Jack and Pulse Audio and combines them together in an easy-to-use system, provided that the distribution 
implements it properly. Now, some distributions have put Pipewire by default, such as Calculate Linux, and also Fedora Linux was the first to do it. And there's others that have done it as well. And I am I just can't wait to see you know all the distributions implementing it because people will be able to experience the awesomeness that is Pipewire. Because when like setting up Jack for those who don't know is one of the most difficult things to do. It's not like incredibly hard, but it's so uh, tedious and you got to do tons and tons of things in a certain sequence. And if you mess up the sequence, you, it's going to make some issues happen. But with Pipewire, you just open up a Jack application and it works. And that's awesome. So really cool to see Pipewire being added by default for Calculate Linux 22. For those who are interested in checking out Calculate Linux, there's multiple de desktop environment options. They have KDE Plasma, Cinnamon, LXQt, Mate, and XFCE options. And if you'd like to learn more about the latest release of Calculate Linux or just Calculate Linux in general, you'll find links in the show notes. Up next in the show, I want to tell you about the Steam Winter Sale that is going on right now, and it will end on January 5th. So if you want to get anything from Steam and your wallet can actually take the hit, that will probably be a very massive hit, even though it's a sell. It just makes you buy more games. At least for me, it does. So now you know the Steam Winter Sale is active right now, and it will end on January 5th. Also, something else that's active for Steam is the Steam Awards voting. So if you would like to vote on the Steam Awards, then you can do so right now. Now, they're going to be announcing the winners on January 3rd, but you can still vote right now as this show is recorded. And maybe if you're watching it relatively soon from the release, but it just depends on when you watch this episode because I know I do it once a week. So there's that. But this is really cool because I really like the Steam Awards because everybody who is uh, on Steam is able to nominate games and also vote on the games rather than the other nonsense game awards where they just give you like, here are a bunch of games you've never heard of, but because we were paid money by these corporate, you know, people, you got to choose from these. But you can totally, you can totally vote on them and they're for sure these votes will count. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know if those votes will count. I just don't expect it considering the games that they offer you are games that are not really games anyone would vote for because sometimes there are, but most of the time. Anyway, Steam Awards are very cool because you get to vote on what gets nominated and you get to vote on the actual winners. So if you want to do that, you can still do it until uh, at least January 2nd at some point. So... Best of luck to all the game developers who are in the Steam Awards, and best of luck to your wallet for the Steam Winter Sale. Up next in the show, and the last topic for today, is that I wanted to tell you about a really cool thing that a Reddit user found, a Crystal Bit. The Reddit user posted something I thought was really cool. Apparently, you can use the touchpad function of a PS5 controller as a touchpad in Linux. I wouldn't have considered this as something to even try, but it's very cool that it works. And since I have a PS5 controller, I definitely will be trying this. And if you have one, then uh, I'll have a link in the show notes for more information and see a video of it being demonstrated and that sort of thing. Links in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via Patreon, sponsors, and others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. And if you do become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the recording stadium to discuss stuff between topics or just hang out every week before and after the show because we do a pre-show before the stream. Like The stream starts, but it's more of like a, po a patron-only pre-show 
thing while I'm doing setup. Then the show goes, we do the show, and then the post show is a patron only hangout as well. And these happen every week. So join us. And also, we do the show live every Saturday, for those who don't know. Uh, we do it at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time or 1700 UTC. Actually, is it 1800 UTC now? I think it's 1800 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the Linux canoes each and every week by going to dealinlive.com. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episodes of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux Network. And thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network, and I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux good news. <laughs>